Hello, you're listening to the Purdue Ag Econ Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Foster, Professor of Agricultural Economics, and with me is my co-host, Dane Erickson, a senior in Ag Econ at Purdue. This is the second in a two-part series focused on the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion with our guest, Dr. Pam Morris, Assistant Dean and Director of Multicultural Programs in Purdue's College of Agriculture. In the first podcast, we focused on these very important issues on the Purdue campus and what Purdue is doing to address them. In this second podcast, we're going to dig a little deeper into the issues of systemic racism in our society and what it's like to be a person of color in today's current environment in the United States. I hope you'll pay close attention in this podcast because the issues are of extreme importance to our society. And each one of us needs to inspect our own situation and our own mindset with respect to how we interact with and treat others. So without further ado, let's return to our discussion with Dr. Morris. Pam, we hear a lot anymore in the news the term systemic racism. And I sometimes think that maybe we all, with our different filters, hear something different when we hear that term. And I'm wondering if you can help us rise above our own filters and experiences and give us a, not necessarily a textbook, but maybe your personal perspective and experience on what that term systemic racism means in the current environment. Certainly. Okay, so you you hear probably three terms. You probably hear structural racism, systemic racism, and institutional racism. And all of those are really synonymous. And so what we're talking about are racist policies. And what's a policy? Those are written and unwritten laws. Those are our practices. Those are procedures. Those are guidelines. All of those different pieces that really have been in place for probably almost 400 years. You know, when we talk about, and, and Dane, you can relate to this, you know, I talked a lot about the socialization process. And through the socialization process, you know, when we're born, we're, we're really born with a clean slate. But as we are socialized with our parents, with our grandparents, with our siblings, uh, and then when we go to, and then with our aunts and our uncles, you know, we begin to take in all this information and we take in a lot of misinformation, especially when it relates to people who we may not be interacting with on a regular basis, who we may be seeing on TV or who we, we may be reading about in the media. And so, you know, we, we believe all that information because why would anyone lie to us? Or why would anyone feed us misinformation? We're socialized into these mechanisms of systems and these mechanisms of systems have already been pre-designated to favor the dominant culture and subordinate anyone else. And not only black and brown people, but people who live with disabilities, people who are different sexual orientations. And so we've had this system of oppression for hundreds of years. And if you look back at the Jim Crow area, where in the South, they were really blatantly racist. I mean, they were putting up signs, you know, only white people can go into this bathroom. Uh, people of color had to go around the back or didn't use this water fountain. 
So, you know, that's more subtle. And that's, that was years ago. However, you know, there's, there's a book out about the new Jim Crow because Jim Crow still exists. Even though we don't want to admit it, we still have racist policies in place. And that's why we want people to understand that it is systemic, it is institutional, it is structural, because these are mechanisms that are already in place to advantage the privileged and disadvantage those who are not in privileged groups. Let me give you an example that you might really be able to, to relate to. The example of redlining. This is where financial institutions give or prevent black and brown people from actually accessing money through their institution. This is a, a discriminatory process that has been in place. Redlining was outlawed, I think, uh, became unlawful about 50 years ago, but it still, it still influences the access to capital and credit. This has had a long effect on our, on our black and brown communities. Black and brown people weren't able to get the kind of loans, and if they did get loans, it was at a much higher interest rate, so they weren't able to purchase homes in areas that they would they wanted to live in. And so the redlining took place probably 80 years ago when our federal government went to a map and start outlining different areas. And the red line area was um, was identified as those areas where they thought people were, were risky as far as getting credit. And so that's where the term came from, redlining. And so there were other lines, there were green lines, there were other lines and other areas that were identified. But the redlining really has had an impact on us and that still impacts us to this very day because those that are living in those red line areas, there's a, I call it digital red line where internet services make a decision on where they want to service people. And so this puts, again, people who are low income at a disadvantage in helping them to gain access and helping them to, uh, to gain access even to their civic responsibilities. This is what we talk about when we talk about institutional, systemic, and structural racism. These structures are already in place and they continue to oppress black and brown people in this country. Thanks. That's really helpful to me in understanding the concept of systemic racism. It reminds me of learning about systemic plant diseases that aren't just on the surface of a leaf of a plant, but are inside the cells of the plant. And it sounds like we're talking about the same sort of thing with systemic racism. It's something that's infected our way of thinking about others and, and our society. And those can be difficult to eradicate in plants. And, and as we know, they're difficult to eradicate in our minds and our way of thinking as well. Dr. Morris, I want to touch back real quick on the issue of socialization and how that carries over into a student's college experience. I think that uh, speaking from personal experience, the difference between being a senior at 21 or 22, it's vastly different from being an 18 year old coming into college. And I suppose I just want to highlight the the problem and the opportunity that brings up and how we conduct ourselves as a campus and what students experience around the issues of race and diversity. So I just wanted to speak up, speak to the issue of continued socialization. 
the socialization process begins when we're born and it continues throughout our lifetime. Until we take our last breath, we will stop being socialized. And as far as um, reduced campus, I think, what are we like second uh, across uh, public institutions? We have the second highest percentage of international students on campus. We have students representing probably over 120 or 25 countries on our campus. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to interact. I, I talked just the other day in class about our in-groups and our out-groups. We all have them. We have people in our in-groups are people who we feel comfortable with. And our out-groups are people who we view as being very different from us. And so many times, based on the master status, that master status is what other people see when they see you, not what you think about or perceive yourself, but what other people see when they see you. And so what I try to get people to understand that being on a campus like Purdue University, where there's so much diversity, it's an opportunity to step outside of our comfort zone and really take that opportunity to get a chance to know people who we might view in our out group. And if we view those in our out group, then maybe based on the master status, you decide, okay, I don't want to interact with this person because I've heard some things about the group, the affinity group, the ethnic group that this person belongs to. So helping people to understand we need to look at people as individuals, we need to stop being so judgmental and be more accepting of our differences. And this is like you said, what are the other, what are the opportunities? There are so many opportunities on Purdue's campus to get to know other people, interact with other people, get to know their stories. We all have a story to share. And I think once we share those stories, we can begin to develop that empathy, understanding someone else from their perspective in the context of which they interact and live and, and begin to respect and appreciate our differences. I was really struck by your discussion of systemic racism, that it goes beyond things that are just written in laws and has a lot to do with the expectations of our societies and communities and and what we place on each other and I guess you know just maybe to add to that that the majority has a much larger voice in setting those expectations for other people and when we do that um, we really limit those other people and their ability to be themselves and their ability to contribute to the community and the society and and that's the part that most of us struggle with because we just don't realize that we're participating in that. And, and maybe that comes back to being a good ally and a good accomplice. I mean, you have to own the degree to which you've contributed to the, the broader problem. And, and that, that's tough, frankly, for most of us. And, you know, Dane, Dane, and I, Dane and I are members of the majority group in the ag world and in, certainly in the College of Ag here at Purdue. And I don't know, do you have any message for us of what we can, what we should do to, to foster a more diverse and inclusive environment here? I do. Well, first of all, it's going to take courage, I think, for a lot of people to really embrace what we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about centuries 
of discrimination and oppression. And you're talking about being socialized to think a certain way about certain people. And so to begin to help to diminish some of those beliefs and assumptions that we've held is not going to be easy. But I think the more that you interact with people who are different, the one word that I would use and that I use all the time is intentionality. We all have to be intentional. We have to be intentional and brave enough and have the courage to step out of our comfort zones because that's what it's about. It's really about being comfortable with the familiar and not being willing to step out and, and why should I step out? The more people that we get to become not only allies, but accomplices to begin to disrupt this structural racism, the better it's going to be for all of us. The march across the bridge in Selma, Alabama, black people, black and brown people were marching before that, but until white people joined, then and only then were their voices heard. So we do need white people to become allies and accomplices in this work to help us change, to help us look at these policies and practices and procedures and guidelines that are racist and begin to move toward, be, be, have move those policies and practices toward being anti-racist. Pam, you mentioned trying to see the the world through other people's eyes and experience it through their eyes to help, I guess, bridge the gap of our differences. You know, I've got uh, three adult children and I worry about them constantly. And I was just wondering if you would be willing to share with us what it feels like to be the mother of an adult black man in today's environment. Yeah, well, it's just been scary. God blessed me with two sons and, and, and they're great young men, but they both have been subjected to racial profiling, which is really scary. Personal story, I moved out to, and I'll, if you don't mind, I'll call it like it is. I moved out to Westville, Indiana. Almost every time they came to visit me, they were stopped by the Westville Police Department. And they were stopped for various reasons. None of them, neither one of my sons were doing anything other than coming to see me. So at the, the last time my oldest son was stopped, he was stopped because they said, well, there was a car that, that was identified as a car that looked just like yours. And the, and the people said that you had gotten out of your car when looking in their, their window. And I thought, you know, that was bogus. So I knew that was. And so uh, my sons, my both of my sons said, you know, we're not, we're just gonna have to stop coming out to see you because if we're gonna be stopped every time we come, we're, you know, we, we can't go through this every time we, we come out here to see you. So I went to the Westville Police Department. I walked in and I told them, I said, I live in this community and I don't appreciate my sons being racially profiled. And I said, because that's exactly what you're doing. And I'm gonna call it as it is, it's racial profiling. I said, because you seem to stop them quite often. And so the policeman who was standing there said, oh, you mean a license plate number? I mean, they knew the license plate number by heart. I couldn't believe it. I thought, yeah, that's, that's my oldest son's license plate number. And so I gave them my Purdue card and I said, I'm in the business of providing opportunities to learn. And if your department needs some, some sensitivity training, I said, I'll be willing to do that. 
to increase their awareness. And so uh, he took my car and said, oh, you know, no, no problem. They were never stopped again. They were never harassed again. Uh, and so um, I have lived in fear. I live in fear all the time. Uh, whenever I wake up in the mornings and they're, um, you know, I live here in Indianapolis, I wake up and I look at the news and when they talk about another shooting on the northwest side of town or I, I fear my oldest son lives in Georgia. He said about a couple of months ago, Mom, I think I'm going to ride my bike this evening. And I thought, don't. Please don't. Because, you know, um, Amir Aubrey was out jogging and was killed. And I said, no. I said, no, I'm afraid for you to do that. So I've held them too, probably too close. But I live with that fear. And I'm on my knees every night praying that they make it through another day because they're black men. And I know the brut police brutality that exists for black men and women now. And so, yeah, as a mother of two black sons, uh, you know, you, you, you tell them how they should act. You know, when the police stop you, get out of your car, don't reach for anything, hold your hands up so that they see, but that doesn't make a difference anymore. And so, um, it's really fearful, and um, it, it keeps me prayerful. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. I, I hope that our listeners were paying attention because it's a vastly different experience than most of us have raising our children. Like I said, we worry about them, but but we rarely worry about them in that way. Just the last question before we sign off. What positive responses and actions are you seeing here at Purdue amongst our community that give you hope that things are gonna turn around and be better in the future? I think what I'm seeing in the Purdue community is that now people are listening. Now people are taking notice. Before, you know, it was just difficult to get people to understand that there's some urgency here. But I think because of all the protests, because we're living in a new normal, in addition to all of the racial inequality and unrest that's going on throughout our country, I think people are now listening and they, they, they're beginning to understand. There be, people are beginning to open their eyes and see that yes, there is an urgency here. Yes, we need to make changes. Yes, we need action. We need to stop talking we need to put action to our words and that's what we have not been able to do a lot of our institutions across this country have talked about it for years but as far as making any changes and taking action we have not but now is the time if not now then when if not us then who you have been listening to the purdue ag econ podcast this was the second of a two-part series focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We want to thank our guest, Dr. Pamela Morris, for taking the time to educate and share with us on these very important issues. We also want to thank her for all that she has done for the Purdue community to inform students and others to better contribute to a more just and equitable society. Want to hear more from Purdue Agricultural Economics? Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or visit www.agecon.purdue.edu. Thanks for listening.